everyone, and welcome to our podcast, Clear as Mud, where we talk to game developers from all walks of life about their personal and professional journeys. I'm your host, Graham Waldrop. As always, our show is presented by Mudstack, the only asset management and collaboration tool custom-built for game studios and digital artists. For more information, head over to mudstack.com. On today's show, we welcome Matthew Medina, advanced narrative designer at ArenaNet. Matthew has worked in the industry for over 30 years now, starting out as a QA tester, uh, and then transitioning to 3D art, and then getting into narrative design as his career moved along. Uh, he's worked at some of the biggest studios in the world, uh, including Ubisoft and EA, and now he's at ArenaNet working on Guild Wars 2. So obviously we had very little to talk about, right? Um, <laughs> we break down the greatest qualities and detriments of narrative in games, what a narrative designer actually does, and how integral they are to every step of the way in the overall creation of a game that features a narrative. For all you cats in the narrative and games out there, this is like catnip, man. It's so cool. Matthew goes deep into his craft to tell us how narrative is done in games and how important the success of creating an effective narrative in video games is for gameplay to dictate the narrative. But he also talks about how challenging that can be because he has to be intimately involved in every department at each stage of development in order to pull it off. Um, so there's just a ton to learn here, and I appreciate how just, I know I said he goes deep, but he really goes deep. This is a very detail-oriented episode, and I think you're really going to enjoy it. So without further ado, here is Matthew Medina. So Matthew, what what's the biggest thing, right? The biggest thing that annoys you with narrative in games today? Wow. The biggest thing that tends to annoy me with narrative in games is that we still haven't quite figured out how, how these things can play together um, more. I think I see some experimental stuff going on in the indie scene quite a lot, um, but sort of at the big high level, you know, AAA, Game of the Year titles, there's still a fair amount of uh, dissonance where where there's just there's narrative sections and then there's gameplay sections and then there's narrative sections, um, you know, and I'm a big player of those games. I really love you know, the things that are going on with Uncharted or um, Sony Santa Monica with God of War. There's amazing, there's amazing stuff out there. The quality level is, is off the charts, but those games still do tend to suffer from that where like, uh, you know, the Uncharted series is the one that I, that I love, but you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of dissonance there um, that I think we are, as an industry still striving to improve. And I think that's getting better. Um, but we still have some road to, to cover. I mean, I'm on the same page with you really with, with that, because I love uh, God of War always have, but the, you know, the new title was, was incredible. Um, Uncharted, like you mentioned, last of us games like that, Metal Gear Solid. Um, but I, I agree with you in the sense that all those, all those franchises owe so much to, to film to filmmaking. And it just feels like we're trying to ape cinema with those titles by bringing like sort of combining this interactive gameplay stuff with this, this passive watching of the narrative and not enough of the narrative to me is, is interactive. And I feel like until we can get to a point where, you know, gameplay can really tell the story more so than a cinematic could, we're always going to have that dissonance that you're talking about. Uh, yeah, it's it's really tough. It comes down to as well. I think you know the level of control that we have 
um, whether it's a controller or the mouse and keyboard, you know, we are still uh, a mind trying to interface with a machine um, of some kind. And so that barrier, I think, really does kind of prevent us from from taking that next step. I know VR is doing some stuff where you're, you're getting a little more involved, but VR is still, um, I don't want to say it's a niche market, but it's still very, very small in comparison to, you know, say console sales, for example. So I think that while there are definitely things that are going on, which are really cool and bring that narrative, like you're embodying what your story is, um, you know, when you have a controller and a hit in your hand, I think there's, there's always so much you can do. Um, but I think there's examples too, where like maybe we can take a step back and, and, and look at like, you know, as, as an antagonist, you're, you're, you know, you're, you're sort of make, making yourself into this agent who is supposed to be, you know, um, maybe a, a caring individual, but then you go on and you murder, you know, thousands of, of bad guys. And, I, you know, you can certainly justify it as like, well, I mean, they, they were shooting at me. So like, of course I'm going to shoot back. And, um, but you know, like to, to, to just casually murder, you know, countless bad guys, you know, does kind of make you a sociopathic monster, um, on the, on the level. Yeah. That was my favorite, one of my favorite things, like when Uncharted 3 was coming out, someone made this really like crudely drawn um, uh, piece of artwork where it was just Drake with two uh, AK-47 shooting in the air, and it was like the greatest serial killer of all time returns, Uncharted 3, Drake's Deception or something. <laughs> it was just really funny, because it's like, yeah, we all like love Nate, and, and you know, he's, he's a great character, but it's like, yeah, he's killing hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Um, even though, yeah, you can, like you're saying, use the justification of, you know, it's sort of fair game fortune hunting. Right. But it's still like, wow. When you really just break that down, it's like, these people are maniacs. Yeah. And it even comes down to like the choices that we make about like whether or not, cause I mean, so I'll use it. We're talking about uncharted. I'll use the, the example of like when, when they introduced stealth into the gameplay of that, you know, I was like, Oh great. Now I can, now I can have some options where maybe I can be, um, not pacifist, but right, like non-lethal, <laughs> you know, can I sneak up behind somebody and choke them out and know that, yeah, they'll wake up, you know, later and be okay. Uh, but <laughs> I remember the first time I tried doing that and I snuck up behind a guy and I grabbed him and I, and, and then all of a sudden you just hear this, <laughs> you know, like you snap yeah. his neck immediately <laughs> and I'm like, oh my right. God, Nate, just cool your jets, man. Yeah. Just put him to sleep. Yeah. It's going to be, that's going to be okay. Yeah. Yeah. I remember they did that in one section and in, in, in two at the beginning. Um, but the rest of the game, when you could do stealth, it was like, nope, you just got to, you're breaking necks. Yeah. And there was really no way like a, like a Metal Gear or something where you could just sneak around and not even engage with anybody either. It was like you almost had to take people out. Yeah, in a lot of cases, that's that was the that was the rule was, you know, in order to sort of progress the, the narrative, you have, you had to complete the, the uh, gameplay challenge. Right. And, and so uh, I, I definitely, you know, I came up playing thief uh, metal age uh, a lot. I mean, the, the original was great too, um, but I think thief two metal age was the pinnacle of, of sort of stealth gameplay for me. Um, and, and that was, that was it, right? Like there was just a level 
and there were guards in the level and it was up to you how you completed your goals um you know you just you had things you know obviously you wanted to steal everything you could uh so it encouraged lots of exploration to find all the gold all the different things you could take um but you know you could you could you could ghost a level, right? Like you go through the entire level and not touch a single guard. Um, and that was, that was considered sort of the pinnacle, uh, of, you know, thief gameplay, uh, was, can you get in and get out without anyone knowing you were there? Yeah. Yeah. And you're talking about some, some indie based games, you know, you think are maybe pushing the, uh, narrative forward in the medium. Are there any, any ones that really are sticking out to you right now that are like, okay, this is, this is really blazing a trail here. Uh, the last one I played that really comes to mind first is Unpacking. Um, it's this cute, small, little game. Uh, I got it on the Switch. And, you know, I mean, it's it's exactly what it says. You know, the title's Unpacking, and that's what you do. You unpack. You unpack, um, you know, this individual's, uh, you know, life, really. Um at different stages and and it was just this joyous little uh you know i mean it has this great you know sort of retro 8-bit kind of graphic style um and you know you just kind of pull stuff out you know unbox uh and then put stuff away and it's kind of up to you where you put them but then as you as you progress through the different stages you see you know how this person's life evolves and changes and grows and how you know despite all that we always have to continue to unpack um and you know there's a greater metaphor there about you know unpacking your life you know unpacking your soul unpacking yourself and your identity and and where you fit uh, uh you know and i don't want to get into the spoilers because i you know i think it's a great little game that people should play and experience for themselves but there's this really wonderful sort of double layer of like yes you're literally unpacking but you're also unpacking you know their um this individual's life uh and and seeing their their points of view and the things that they like and the, and how you know what they keep versus what they lose right like and it's just it's a really wonderful um and again that is that is the simple act of unpacking right as a gameplay element um uh, but you're doing you're doing multiple levels of things and so that's where i was sort of like and i i'm pretty sure it won the bafta uh for narrative because because of that because it had this really joyous little you know sort of like you were doing two things at once and the and the gameplay and the narrative were right there you know they were just perfectly aligned this is this is what it's all about that that game definitely was also like addicting in the sense that the gameplay itself was pretty fun but also like you're saying it's like you're you're literally unpacking the narrative with unpacking all the things in the game so it's like it was presenting things um clearly but it was doing it in a way that was just inherent to the gameplay and, and paint a very clear picture about the story without being heavy handed about it. Yeah. And I, th- I think, uh, this might not count as an indie cause I, you know, it, it obviously got a, a fairly large, um, kind of push from, from the publisher, but, uh, stray is another game that I played recently that, that I thought was really fascinating. And, that one I thought was was less about, yeah, the gameplay and the narrative are married up, but that the gameplay and the narrative were, were sort of deliberately, um, you know, if I can, you know, stray from each other, right? Like, because you're playing a cat. And so, like, how, how, do, how do you have, you know, narrative with a cat when a cat is sort of like a, a, you know, an animal with certain, you know, you have certain expectations of what a cat can do and can understand. Uh, 
but but then when you you know progress through the game and you see oh there is this wonderful little like the way that cats curiosity and exp- and sense of exploration um you know kind of helps unfold a story right like and and that's how they perceive the world right like um and it was really fascinating to to sort of put yourself in the mind of a cat um, and in the body of a cat and being able to do all these, you know, cat things like <laughs> running around. And, uh, I remember tripping people, um, <laughs> you know, <laughs> my cat often does that when we walk up and down the stairs. Um, and so it's like, I was very familiar with that. And so it's like, yeah, I mean, it, it fits, right? Like it's, it's the gameplay is the cat, but the narrative is sort of like above that. And so it's sort of this meta narrative of like, yes, you're playing a cat. And so the cat has only has so much experience of this world. Um, and, and how does that translate? Um, and so because I'm a human and I'm sort of playing in this role and controlling this cat, I have a different level of understanding than maybe the avatar does. So it's, it's wonderful sort of examination of that, of the difference between our avatars in the world versus our own thinking, um, you know, being as a player with the controller. Uh, so I really, I really enjoyed that one too. Yeah. I need to play that. My wife uh, played it. She beat it in like a week. She couldn't stop playing it. I, when I saw at least I, I really liked, um, cat was animated perfectly. I, I couldn't get over how fluid and lifelike the, the animations were for the, for the actual cat. But yeah, I, I definitely want to play it from a narrative standpoint. It sounded, sounded really interesting. I love what you're talking about, the, the, the relationship with the actual avatar and how unique that is in, with embodying uh, an actual animal. So yeah, I definitely want to, definitely want to check that one out. Um, I know there's a, there, there's sometimes um, a bit of a disconnect, I think, within how people perceive sort of what you do um, around narrative design versus like just being a writer, right? Can you break down the differences between the the two professions there? Yeah, so game writing is 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 very much what it sounds like, um, but there's there's complexity there that I think maybe some people might not know about because our industry can can be sometimes opaque about these things. Where a game writer, yes, they write the dialogue that you will hear in the game. They also tend to you know get um, visibility through in-game objects or you know codex entries um tutorials and hint systems so all the things that players do have to like that anytime that puts text on the screen that's the job of a game writer um having written that text um but they also do then you know world building they do a lot of uh behind the scenes work with story breaking where they you know they they help plot the the storyline as a you know, as a plot, they, they do the character arcs, so where the characters start, where they finish, um, how much the character, how much character to put in, um, because that's one of the things that is different about our medium is because players can inhabit the space themselves as actors in the world. You kind of have to leave room for them on the stage, right? Like it's 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 like writing a play where one of the characters is an unpredictable person from the audience. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like, hmm, how do we write a play uh, that is intriguing, uh, where the main you know star of the of the whole production is is somebody, and you'd have no idea who they are and what they're what they're wanting to do. Um, so game writers have to try to plot around that and create character arcs around that. Um, so that's sort of the, the, the role of a game writer. And then a narrative designer, 
we will take all of the elements that are created and that includes the writing it includes the art and the visuals of the characters it includes you know set pieces that we need to you know the anything the character or the player character can interact with um, and we build we build out the world that they will inhabit and and we build out the missions and the levels uh, kind of depends on the terminology and what kind of game it is um, but we are sort of setting the stage for what the player experience how the player experiences the story um, and most of the time, I will say, I think that that involves some kind of implementation using the in-game development tools, um, whether it's Unreal, Unity, or a proprietary tool. Um, you know, you build, you get hands-on, and you, you, you know, in some cases you will do uh, either a visual scripting language or a text scripting language. Um, some people, you know, don't have great narrative tools and they end up having to write a lot or, or build a lot using, you know, Excel spreadsheets and, and C plus, um, and, you know, they will get almost on the level of programming. Um, and, you know, so there's, it's, it's a lot of just making sure that you have the technical knowledge to know, okay, I have this character and this scene, how does that play out? And what are the elements that I need to, to build that? And so it's a lot of coordination and collaboration as well. Uh, narrative design has to go to pretty much every department and work with them on, hey, I, I need this map for my, um, for my scene to play out. Okay, great. And I need these four props because uh, the player is going to go over here, they're going to interact with the thing, uh, and then they're going to talk to these NPCs, and so I need all the dialogue for all these NPCs, I need character art for all the NPCs, uh, I need animation support, because this particular NPC that I'm going to interact with has to do a dance when, you know, when you tell them that you're, you know, that you've brought them the thing that they were looking for as a quest, they'll do a little happy dance, so I need animation support, uh, and then I need the gift you know, so I need a little object that, you know, the player can either hold or, or, you know, maybe it's in their inventory. So now I need UI and UX support. So narrative design is kind of like, um, you know, in a lot of ways, we, we construct uh, that player's experience of, of a game's narrative. Um, and so that can, that, can, that can be really complicated sometimes. Um, so narrative design, it's a, it's, a, it's a kind of content design, but content design usually um, is not necessarily uh, targeting uh, stories. It can be other things that the player is getting to do. Um, so kind of what we, we talk about when we, when we say, okay, uh, when there's that dissonance of like, hey, the, the story's over here, but then what we're asking the player to do is something maybe kind of tangential to that. Um, so like go, you know, find 16 things in the world, you know, that's just, that's pure content design. Um, it, it has a, you know, has a bearing on the story, but it's not specific to the story. Um, so that's kind of how I see the difference. And that's another thing too, that's unique about that role is that, uh, you're having to talk to so many different departments where I feel like most of the time, you know, maybe programming will talk with the technical artists, um, you know, the level design will obviously talk with 3D, the 3D artists, just with the 3D game, um, you know, things like that. There's just always collaboration, but, you know, with narrative design, it's like you're talking with everyone to make sure that what you're doing is going to work. Like there's, it doesn't feel like there's one department you don't talk to. 
Yeah, I, I've often compared it to it's sort of like being um, the second director on a movie set, right? Like the, we're not the main director because that's usually the game director or the creative director. They're the ones that have the vision for the for the project as a whole, uh, and they're and they're in their director's chair, kind of making sure that everything gets done. But as a second director, you're responsible for hey, I've got this scene, this is mine. You know, I'm working closely with the director. And, you know, but it's it's up to me to, like, make sure that all those elements come together. We work very closely with production as well, because producers are the ones who have, you know, a lot of those pieces of the puzzle. They know where to get all those pieces. Um, and so, like, you have to work with them very closely to be like, okay, I need this and I need this and I need that. And we all have to, have, you know, be run on the same schedule. Otherwise, uh, you know, when I go to implement, if I don't have what I what I need then that I run into like blockers and show show stopping um you know problems uh and so sometimes they'll they'll be like okay we we can't get you this right now cuz our animators are busy doing other things here's a stub right like here's something that you know at least you can hook up and then you know when the when the official art comes in then it just goes in you know as it is, but right now we can we can just give you gray box or uh, you know a, a stub file that you can at least play um, play with. Yeah, delve a little deeper with that if you can. I know you can't really get into too many of the specifics, like a specific thing that you you actually worked on. But if you're making a scene, right, can you walk through like the process of, of bringing it from sort of concept to to creation? Yeah. So for for me, the the process that I use is. It's very visual uh, because I went to art school and and started my career as an artist. I still think in a lot of those ways. Uh, so visual representation is key for me. So I like to start by um, we do, you know we usually would do story breaking meetings where we kind of break down um, the beats that we want. Um, a to B to C. Is that similar to like a writer's room for TV? Yeah, yeah. Writer's room is definitely a, a term we use as well. Um, the, the, when I think of writer's room, I think more of like we're breaking down the, you know, some of the, well, I don't know. I guess it's, maybe it's different for everybody, but um, I think of that as more of like the, the dialogue process, right? Like we read mm -hmm. reading scripts and, and saying, yeah, we want to change this line. We want to massage that scene. Um, those are sorts of the writer's rooms that I think that I think of as opposed to story breaking where it's like, we just get in a room and we, and we figure out like what's, you know, what's the plot where, where does the characters fit into all that? Um, and, you know, just kind of really get a high level outline view of like, not just the entire storyline, but each individual chapter and then each individual piece of content. So that would, once we have all that, we have, you know, I, I tend to still use of, uh, I mean, in the past when before COVID, we would <laughs> have a whiteboard with sticky notes, uh, but now we use Miro or some other sort of organizational tool to flow chart out like, and we just put virtual sticky notes on the board of like, this happens here, this happens there. Um, and then as a result of this, you know, I'm, I'm very much a sort of, I like doing consequence, uh, you know, this, you know, therefore, this then happens, uh, you know, but something else comes up, you know, sort of like kind of stringing it all together in, in a sequential order. Um, so you can, uh, I, you know, identify the causal links 
and how everything flows into each other because cause and effect are, are really important for me uh, and i think for for any story um it's 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 too often very easy to fall into the trap of like and then this happens and then this happens and then this happens and it's like where does it stop kind of thing right yeah that's and that's not a story that's not a like well this happens because this you know wrinkle happens right like and and so putting up the all all those pieces allows us to identify those areas where it's like okay Yes, we want this to happen, but why, right? Like, you know, if there's no why, then we got to go back a step and figure out like, well, let's, let's, let's set up the why so that we, we, when we get to this point, we actually understand what's, what's going on. So I do the visualization step um, so that we can have a good storyboard, uh, not a storyboard in the traditional film sense where it's like all drawn out, but, a, you know, in my head, I think of that as a storyboard of like A to B to C uh, until you get to the end of the story. And then I will come take that and I will start to uh, prioritize what are the things that I want to focus on first uh, because the thing that is really important in that process is there will, you know, in, in collaboration with others, you don't want to create downstream problems for other teams. Uh, and so being able to say, well, I really want to work on this first because this has dependencies from other teams. Um, and so I want to make sure I identify what those are going to be so that I can inform those other teams. Hey, we have this very big moment, you know, at the end of the story and we really need it to be, uh, stellar. So we need animation support. We need visual effects support. We need cinematics to come in and review stuff. We need, you know, all these, all those things that will make it a, a shining beacon of, you know, gameplay and narrative. That's all great, um, but so let's let's work on this at least on paper. Figure it out first, uh, and then and then we can go away. And then once I've got my priority list and I've identified all the assets and all the visual effects that we will need, um, you know, we kind of take that and run with it, and then we start implementing. Um, and I do I do fairly high level implementation. I do skeletal. Uh, I build the skeleton of a mission. I don't worry about gameplay at this point that much. I will put stuff in to represent, hey, here's here's where gameplay is going to be. Here's where I want things to happen. But most of that first pass is really just like making sure that I'm hitting all the story points that we want. Right. Does, does level design or... or specific game designers come in and figure out what the gameplay is going to be, or they work with you on that. They do work with us on that. Um, but a lot of that also still falls on, on, on the narrative designer. Um, because I would want to work with our systems designers and, uh, content designers and figure out like, what are the things that I need to pull in? Um, cause if there's a feature that, you know, that is, that is existing, the feature is something that, you know, needs to be integrated into the story as well. So where is that going to happen? How do we do that? Uh, you know, what's the, th what's the theory? What's the tutorialization that we need to do? Where do mm -hmm. we want to take this? Um, and then are there, are there pieces of content that we also want to showcase? Are there things that we want to spotlight in the story? How do we bring that stuff in? Um, figuring that out together. Um, so yeah, narrative design definitely sits in the same pocket and we, we, we have, you know, 
I think narrative design benefits greatly uh, when it's working in tandem with systems design and technical design and content design. You know, it's it's just all one big family. Um, so I think for a game to feel cohesive, all those design disciplines really need to be working together and on the same you know sort of page. And I imagine that's pretty frequent, right? Like, um, I bet there's not like a ton of time that goes, you know, past like your storyboard, storyboarding to your, your list of things to your skeleton where you're not checking in with, with, with someone on those teams. Yes. I think that's, that is a true statement. Uh, when, when that's not happening, I think it's very obvious, uh, in the end product, uh, because, uh, yeah, there's going to be that disconnect where it's like, well, you've built, there's this system over here and it's really cool system, but it's only talked about once in the storyline and then it's never brought up again. Why, why is that? Um, and that can happen. It can happen on the best projects. Um, you know, it's, it's not, <laughs> sometimes there are, there are very good reasons why, you know, if a feature, if a feature is, uh, you know, out of sync with, uh, where the rest of the project is, um, and that could be for nobody else, you know, nobody's fault other than either, it, you know, it, it, it got uh, reassigned, you know, late in the project or a director came in and said, you know, we might want to do this differently. Uh, this isn't really singing to me and I want to change it. Um, you know, and at that point, if, if the rest of the project's kind of gone along, um, you know, you kind of have to live with a little bit of disconnect because there's, there's no way that you're going to restart the whole project because, you know, one, one part of the project got out of sync. Um, so it's, it's unfortunate that that's how game development sometimes works. Okay. So you're, you're sort of in that, in, in this period now, I think sort of the, the, the skeletal part. So what, what comes next after you, after you get to that position? Uh, so I think for me, I like to then do a sanity check by having, uh, stakeholders come in and, and review, um, you know, lead writing, uh, and lead designing, uh, folks will need to come in and at least play through it and be like, yes, this hits all the expected, um, you know, story beats that we want. This also has all the right, you know, pacing in terms of like where we want gameplay uh, and that, and that the gameplay and the narrative are playing well together and that they are not like, there's no uh, um, inconsistencies or even worse contradictions of like, hey, you're being asked to do this thing in gameplay, but it, the story says something different. Um, why is that? Um, hopefully you identify all that stuff right away. Um, and, uh, you know, usually that gets a fairly clean, you know, version of the story at the end of that process because you will have, you will kind of have identified all the worst offenders um, and, and where you need to go back and, and smooth things out and, and, you know, pull, pull narrative and gameplay closer together. Um, and so that, that's what allows you to move to the next stage where the writers can go away and write, you know, to the dial, to the actual gameplay, um, that you identified, uh, as needed, uh, and then they can start working on the character arcs and how the characters interact in those in those storylines, and then from there it's it's just the narrative designer will just iterate and iterate and iterate and build build that gameplay in um, until you get to uh, 
you know, either depending on the project, either a vertical slice, um, you know, which is, hey, we want we want we want to see the entire project in, you know, a small chunk. Um, and so you'll build like, you know, 20% of it. And but that 20% has everything that the game is supposed to have so that you can at least say, okay, we've got one mission, we've got one map, we've got, you know, the feature in place, we've got, you know, the, the, the anticipated um, thing. So that the stakeholders can then, you know, assess that as well and be like, yeah, we're moving ahead with this. Um, and if that's not going to pass, then, you know, there's, there's very little chance that the project will, will be on, you know, on target. So that's a good place for, for you to uh, readjust. Well, I think that's interesting, too. You were talking about how gameplay dictates dialogue, dicta- dictates character arcs, and not, not the other way around. I think that that's the way it should be. Um, I certainly know that there are, there are places where that may not be true, where the narrative dictates um, what happens. And I mean, I think there's no right answer on that because you can make a game where the narrative is, is really strong and it does dictate what the gameplay should be. Um, but I tend to think that, you know, as, as, as far as that goes, that ends up feeling more to me like interactive fiction, interactive novels or television shows or, you know, which is fine. Um, I think there is room in, in our medium for those, for sure. Um, but I think most of the time I find that when when narrative takes its cue from gameplay and from content, um, then... I think that's where you get that the most bang for your buck in terms of like it feeling like a really good game experience, Um, you know, because that's what makes us different from novels and television shows. Um, It may not always be the best writing uh, because again, making good writing that has to account for the unpredictable player character that's a tough thing, man. I, I don't know that I don't know that anyone's figured it out yet. I think we're all we're all in the process of trying to to find that. Um, I think there is ways to make that work, but the the scope needed to make that work sometimes is just really prohibitive. Like you would have to account for you'd have to write alt lines for every single possible player action, and I don't think anyone can even think of all those things. No, I mean it would be a writing and programmatic nightmare. Yeah, absolutely. So I think, you know, just figuring out like where, where are your battles, where to pick your battles. Um, that's also part of that mid process of deciding, uh, when you're implementing and iterating on your storyline, you have to then start picking your battles of like, okay, where are the places where we can really, um, tune in to the player and tell them that they're doing the right thing, um, or give them accolades for what they have been doing. Um, you know, cause that's a big part of what we do too as well in games development is making sure that the player feels that you know they're doing something right or that they are doing something uh that is rewarding to them um and it it, i think rewards we too often get into the loop of like yeah rewards is just about like giving the player cool stuff and it's like well yeah i mean who doesn't like getting cool stuff? Um, but I think it's better and it's more 
rewarding and memorable for the player if that cool stuff is accompanied with uh, a really compelling narrative hook you know um I will say, like, I think that's one of the success, one of the successful things I've seen with the the Destiny games is they've turned that into a really big hook, right? Like, it's not just about the weapon you get. Like, yeah, those are cool weapons, but the fact that each of the weapons has a story and and a really like touchstone moment, and it doesn't have to be big, right? Like, but it's 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 enough to like drive players to be like, yeah, this is cool. I got this awesome, you know, weapon that you know, it has a story to it. Um, so I think there's a lot of, a lot of room for us to, to uh, deliver story in a number of different uh, methods. And, and so that iterative process is part of exploring all those different vehicles for, for telling stories. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head with all that stuff and particularly going back to, you know, talking about how gameplay should, should dictate what happens around, around dialogue and around story. Um, you know, games like Quantic Dream games, like Heavy Rain and uh, Detroit and things like that. It's like, there's it's such a clear narrative, right? But it's like, you don't really feel like you're doing anything at the same time. Like you are, you're like you're making some choices, but it's like in terms of like the moment to moment gameplay, unless you're making a really big decision, it's like a mini game kind of, kind of, sort of. And it's like, I'd rather, I'd rather just kind of watch this. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I do like those games, but... Like you said, right? Like your your agency as a as a as a vehicle in those games is is limited. You have some choices to make. You have some some light sort of like puzzly mini game kind of game play, and that's fun. But yeah, you're not. There's no illusion that you are this character. It's it's more like. How do you want this? It's it's a. It, I I kind of look at those as those choose choose your adventure books, which I loved as a kid. I love those, and I still do. You can make the outcome different in the end, but really, you are not doing a whole lot that other people are not doing. Um, your experience will not be the distinct. Yeah, it's like a narrative uh, boa constrictor squeezing the life out of the gameplay almost. What the gameplay could be if if it was a different design decision. Yeah, there's this great. This is a great video, though, of um, somebody playing uh, Heavy Rain, and there's this chase sequence through the market. And oh, yeah, with the chicken, right? Yeah, and, and the guy does absolutely everything wrong, and he misses all the quick time cues. Uh-huh. And I don't know, they put some laugh track on top of it of this guy just laughing hysterically. It is the best clip. And, I'm, and I, the whole time I was thinking, man, wouldn't it be cool if like you actually took control of him in that moment and you could actually like you would still have all those things kind of getting in your way but like being able to like actually jump and and run through that market would have been so cool and i I feel like it wouldn't have been any harder to set up than the cinematic ones you know with the quick time events Um, yeah probably not and like or the scene there's uh i remember there's another scene and i I, for the record i do love heavy rain i played it like 10 times like as much as yeah. i'm kind of like talking about you know my my issues with it i still love it uh there's a scene where like you have to drive like uh against traffic or like you're going head mm-hmm. on into traffic and it's like i did one i did an experiment too where i kind of failed a lot of those uh quick time events where you have to like swerve around cars and whatnot right. it's a cool scene but it's like didn't really change the outcome that much um it's not like i died or something you know 
Um, yeah. Like, yeah. That would be interesting if like I didn't get out of the way of this car and I had a head on collision. I shot through the windshield and then that character's story is done. It would have made that that you know, knowing what the stakes could be. You know, it's it's it's, it's like the story saying, Okay, he can't die at this moment, so there's no way that you can die as a character. Because there is no respawn in a game like that. So it's like right. these life and death moments that don't really have life or death consequences. Yeah, exactly. Until the story needs you to have them. Until until the story needs you to have it, right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, what about when you start getting into like more of the visual stuff, working with working with the the art the art side of the of the team? Yeah, that's when I think it, it feels more and more like you start taking on the director's duties. Um, you know, in terms of like once once I've set up a scene uh, and it's and it's got the gameplay that I want and it's got the 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 narrative locked down and we know what the dialogue is and we know where all the story pieces are from there it just becomes about well okay what's the presentation how do i how do i make this feel uh what i want players to feel um and that can that can go into like okay i need i need the map artist to give me uh an environment um that gives me the kinds of uh, sight lines that i want uh the kinds of uh, and then that's different from level design sight lines where the level designers are going to want to, sight lines that tell the player, you know, where they need to go or, or important things. For me, a sight line is more like, hey, I have three actors on this virtual stage and I want to showcase them. So like where in the where do I want the camera to generally be when when I can't control the camera, um, you know, like. If you're a third-person game, you know you you're gonna see the back of your character, and the camera's gonna be in the player's hands. They could swing it around. First person, the same thing. They can kind of turn their head, you know. So we, in games, often don't know where the camera's gonna be. Uh, so how do you, how do you <laughs> how do you define that and figure out the solution to that problem? And I think there's a number of ways that we are figuring out how to do it, which is through. Um, uh, I mean, some some games will just pull the camera away uh, and and focus on it, or they'll give you a button press of like here, push this button and it focuses the camera on something that they want you to look at. Um, and in other games, we use techniques like um, you know creating visual interest. Um, so it's like okay, now there's a fire burning in the corner and or lighting, um, you know, to to highlight an area in the world that want players to look at uh, and sort of giving them the you know the tools that they need to, to sort of create that moment that we want you know the focus to be on um, uh, I, I, I in my personal work I've started looking at like things that the ways that um, theater uses for example so a trick that I used often uh, in my work uh, is I'll put you know, NPCs, I'll just tweak their facing. So, like, normally when people talk, they're standing and they're facing each other. Um, but I think of one of the tricks that I've tended to use for my own work is I'll offset them so that they're kind of looking past each other and at some invisible mark um, in the space to invite the player, hey, if I stand here, now we have a trio and there's a conversation between us, right? Like, so it kind of invites the player in, gives them, you know, 
and and I think that's a trick that uh, theater does as well, right? Where the two characters will talk to each other, but it, you know, at times they will kind of turn and open themselves up to the audience as though the audience is a you know an active participant in right. the story. I think that's that's brilliant, man. Like that's yeah. so cool because yeah, you're exactly right. Like with theater, it's like you have to project to the person in the back of the theater. Yeah, and to do that, you got to be looking at the audience, and yes. um, so for you to position other characters like that so that you know they're looking at the audience which is the player who also has an interactive part in this i mean that that's a that's fantastic that's really cool yeah so it's it's about doing stuff like that and um you know controlling uh npc speed is a is a constant thing that we often grapple with um i don't think anyone's really figured out the best way to solve it. I was playing cyberpunk, uh, again recently, uh, cause that's one of, one of those games that, that just pulls me in time and time again. I, I, I love the world. Uh, I love the stories, uh, and just running around in, in night city is, is fantastic. And they have moments where there's, uh, there are these narrative moments where you're supposed to follow an NPC and it's quite clever. Like I really appreciate what they did where like, you 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 know because your character moves like there's no tomorrow i mean <laughs> character run speeding games is always way way above where you know normal, normal people would walk um just because you know people get frustrated when they have to move slow mm-hmm. um but when those moments hit in cyberpunk like they they put this sort of like i guess it's kind of like a cone probably behind the NPC that as long as you're within that cone, you move at the speed that the NPC moves, you match their speed. I think that's a brilliant way of solving that problem of like, Hey, we don't want you to just blast past the NPC all the time. So if you stand relatively close behind them, you will move at the same speed. Um, you know, and so it's, it's really fun, but if you move outside of that cone, you know, you go back to moving at normal speed again. Um, so, you know, there's there's all kinds of tricks that we, I think, as narrative designers uh, and, you know, game developers have, have been trying to find to to make that connection to the to the story uh, and the characterization um, of yourself in in the agent that you're controlling um, more, more immersive and more important. And what about for like someone? It's a little, it's not really off topic, but it's a little based a little bit about what you were saying, but like someone who maybe isn't as into the narrative, right? A player who isn't as into the narrative, just wants to play the game. Do you take that into account at all in terms of how do we get them invested? Or is it just sort of like, this is what we're doing. This is the type of game we're making. Hopefully they still get something out of it, but you know, this is sort of where, what we're doing. I think we have to, I think we have to look at that more seriously. Um, and those are challenging situations. You know, if the if the game engine or the game systems aren't built for that, it can be really hard um, to do. And I think I think games that that address that, I think will will probably do better across the board with regards to like player satisfaction. Maybe um, just because, yeah, I am right up there with a lot of the time, like I'm, I'm a narrative designer and I love game narrative. I I absolutely adore it. But there are times when it's like, okay, now I've done this. I know what to expect. I know what the story is. You know, I don't need 
any more dialogue right now. I, I, I would love to skip it. I would love to just move along and, and play and have the experience of play. So I think, I think we really want to be in a position where like, yes, narrative in games, uh, you know, I love it and I take it very seriously. And I, and I hope that players enjoy narrative that, you know, I or others create, but at the same time, like, I, I think it's, it is valid for us to say that is not for everybody. So let's, let's find ways to either turn it down or turn it off uh, by allowing them to skip um, things that they that they are not interested in because um, there are different players and yeah and it's interesting because I know accessibility is a big thing that we are as an industry working on improving and yeah I think I think that goes hand in hand with that I think while it's not necessarily an accessibility issue I do think that it is similarly like, you know, now that we have like many different level, like a lot of games ship with many different difficulty levels for, for different, you know, uh, kind of what is it, what is it you want today, right? Like, what is it you want to experience? Do you want to experience just the story or do you want a challenge? Do you want to have, you know, and do you want an extreme challenge, right? Like, so like difficulty levels are, are getting better and more nuanced and more granular with what you can control. And I think, I think story presentation is the next thing on that list to be able to say, you know what? I don't want story in my game. <laughs> I mean, obviously it's going to be there because I don't know how we would build a story without some kind of through line, but you know, in in terms of like, yes, allow me to skip it all um, by giving me a button um, would be great. And it does mean that we have more complicated development. Um, and and but hopefully you can build that in sy systemically by having it just be a thing. It's like, yes, we're going to make it so that story is skippable. We're going to make it so that dialogue is skippable. We're going to make it so that, um, you know, maybe we have uh like some sort of text to speech thing so that you can present things in text and and then if you want it to be audible with vo you just you hit the button and if otherwise it's read whenever you have the you know the desire to do so i don't know yeah there's, there's certainly a lot of possibilities there i mean it's been incredible what what's been done for people who are colorblind and things like that um particularly I had to keep going back to PlayStation Studios, but the, uh, the Naughty Dog did, I thought, Last of Us 2 um, for the accessibility for people who are, who are colorblind or, or, or whatever. You know, it was just like, it was just so thought out because um, there's, there's been some sort of things like that I've seen in the past that just kind of feel a little half-baked. But this was like, no, they whoever designed that spent, uh, or the team that did, spent a ton, ton of time making sure it's as accessible as possible to to the, the biggest uh, market possible for that game. So yeah, like how that changes with narrative in the future will be, will be really interesting to, to uh, take into account. Yeah. And I will say, I mean, I, I can't speak for anyone else, but for me, I don't find any offense in that at all. Like I don't like, yes, I, <laughs> I obviously want people to enjoy the work that I do, but it's okay if the, or their enjoyment of that is skipping it. Right. Right. Like th that's okay. I, I will take no offense if 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 my work is not your cup of tea. By all means, I don't want to. I want. I don't want to burden players with it if I if I don't have to. Um, right. Right. So yeah. 
What about stuff like getting uh, like QA feedback on on certain narrative decisions and things like that? Do you, do you ever have to go like back to the drawing board or or make another or make a lot more iterations than you thought you would have to? Yes, in fact, that is a that is a key component, um, and I'm glad you brought that up. Like quality assurance, I think we have gotten to the state where I really believe QA is the most essential part of game development. Uh, it's, it's the difference between a gr good game and a great game, but it's also the difference between, you know, the broken game and a, and a, and a sh you know, ready to ship game, um, which is obvious, but part of that is, you know, making sure that the narrative has consistency and three, you know, uh, a through line that makes sense. The, the most challenging thing, I think, for us in narrative and game writing is we are so close to this. Like, we have scores and scores of meetings to discuss this stuff. It's living in our head. We are breathing it. We are eating it. You know, like, it never leaves us. We're always thinking about our, our storylines and our character arcs. And so it's intimately clear to us. And it's not until somebody who is, you know, QA, they're, they're getting to play it for the first time. And they're going to be like, well, this doesn't make any sense. You go from this to this, like, I, there's no through line, right? Like, it's like, well, no, it, it's, it's right here. And you, you point to, like, the one line of dialogue where maybe an exposition is given. And you're like, oh, I totally missed that, right? Like, so that's one of those things they're like yeah you you need qa to come in and check you and give you feedback that yeah hey this story that's in your head that's brilliant you got to put more of that on the page or in our case uh you know in in the bits um, of the world because yeah it's it's really easy to get too close to something and think well this is of course it make, it all makes sense it, it all flows and 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 it's not until somebody else comes in and is like no dude you've got this giant gap <laughs> there's a big plot hole here or this contradicts other things you know that you've done or this you know uh character would never say this um and you're like well yeah they would and then you know you kind of go back and research the character and you're like oh well yeah i guess that's true this character probably wouldn't do that um but you know it makes sense in the moment um uh so yeah having somebody that check you uh and, and provide great feedback is is super essential and key. And uh, our QA people, I think, maybe are unsung heroes who don't get enough uh, credit <laughs> for their valiant efforts um, at keeping games uh, from being uh, you know, fundamentally awful on a lot of levels. Right. And that's really cool, too. That sounds like they really understand the characters. They understand the stories you guys are trying to trying to tell or almost almost act as, as editors for a novel in a way. Yeah. And I will say that, 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 that leads me to think that I think right now, uh, sort of quality assurance is, is very generalized, um, right. Where you just, you have a cadre of quality assurance analysts or, or, you know, testers. I really want there to be maybe, uh, in the future, uh, looking at, Hey, do we do we want to have specialists in this department, right? Like, do we want yeah. to have narrative QA? Do we want to have, um, you know, content QA? Do we want to have feature QA? People who understand things on a deeper level, 
and maybe you know a narrative QA would have very good lore knowledge, ex you know exceptional uh, sort of character um, understanding, and 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 maybe even they do their own you know sort of like uh, writing uh, and and being able to 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 look at things and spot typos and errors, you know, and help the editors out. And, you know, so it's like, it's, yeah, I mean, I think there's, I think there's definitely room for, for us to, to look at that. Yeah. And I think that's also something too, if you were to make, if there were to be more specialized QA, then that could, it almost could set up more specific tracks for those people. If they wanted to, you know, eventually get into narrative design or get into writing or whatever, it's like, this yes. would be the first step to doing that in a more overt way. Yeah, I think it does happen. I mean, I will say, like at at our studio, we do have uh, some analysts who are who are exceptionally, uh, you know, they're not. That's not their their whole department, right? It's not their whole specialty uh, because there there isn't that that level of granularity yet in terms of like titles or roles. But I do think that there is a fair amount of room for us to, to look at that as an industry of like, maybe QA needs to evolve to, to match uh, the sort of, you know, specialization that we have in our, in our industry as a whole. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. What about when you get into sort of the cinematics and voiceover world? What, how does that impact what you guys do? Uh, you know, we definitely, uh, the, the biggest impact that that has on us is, making sure that we prioritize certain things because uh, both cinematics and voiceover require a lot of lead time, right? You've got to, you know, like cinematics take a long time to, to make uh, and, and process. Uh, and so they need scripts very quickly um, so that they can lock some stuff down and start making these giant <laughs> production pieces. Uh, I mean, unless it's, unless it's like, they have the ability to do in-engine cinematics, which not saying that those are easier or that that takes less time. Um, but in-engine cinematics, I think you, you can make more adjustments, I, I would assume. I say this in ignorance because I've, I've never actually had to do that. Uh, <laughs> but it seems, at least on the surface of it, to be a little easier than like a pre-rendered cinematic, for example. Um, and then uh, VO requires a lot of lead time because you've got to schedule the actors, you've got to schedule the studio, you've got to you know get a lot of stuff um, in place before you can go and record. Uh, so you you know it, it impacts how quickly or how importantly we we structure certain dialogue uh, and scripts. Um, and so you know that's kind of what I was saying before about like prioritization is not just about like. I need these maps, I need these props, but it's like, I also need these scripts and I also need these assets for cinematics and I also need, um, you know, to tell uh, the um, the lead writer, you know, <laughs> where to focus. Uh, so, you know, there's, there's all kinds of things uh, that kind of go into that prioritization stage um, and, and certainly VO and cinematics is a big part of that. With all that taken into account, how long do you, how long does like a typical scene take you guys to to, to finish? Yeah, I mean, I, the the number that comes to mind is about three months um, from start to finish, at least in terms of like getting it in playable fashion. Uh, iteration is endless. I mean, the the thing that I I definitely know 
from having worked on narrative and story content uh, now for some time is that uh, it will get the number one uh, most amount of feedback from from the people internally that play it uh, from QA because um, you know we're there's 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 areas where I think you know I mean content certainly has a fair share of feedback as well but I think because story is so fundamental to us as a species you know we are a storytelling uh, group of primates. We love to gather around the fire and tell stories. Um, we've done that for hundreds of thousands of years. So every one of us that is living and breathing has a, a tie to story, right? Like it's why movies and television and books, why they're so popular. Um, and so because we all have this touchstone to storytelling, whether in our own lives or, or just, you know, through the fictional ones that we read or that we experience in content and media, we feel like we have a good grasp of storytelling. And I think a lot of people do. I think most people probably do have a pretty good grasp of storytelling. Um, and so because of that, you know, storytelling gets a lot of, a lot of notes, you know, like why does I, I wouldn't write like this. I wouldn't want this character to say this. I wouldn't want this plot moment to happen and and there there can be so much subjectivity to that right like of like what is what is good well good writing might be you know different for a for an english professor who is critiquing it on its you know like quality of you know like word usage and grammar and you know like clarity versus somebody who is coming at it from like well no i want something that's just fun and exciting and you know, this, this language is boring. It's like, well, maybe it's boring, but it gets the point across, right? Like, right. And, it, and it does so, you know, so like good writing can be very different depending on the, who's, who's evaluating it. Um, so yeah, uh, we definitely get a lot, a lot of notes uh, on our, on our story content. Um, so yeah, the three month period is like for us to get it into a shape where, we will probably get more and more eyes on it. And then from there, it, it's like, until it ships, it's not done. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then at some point, we just have to say, that's it. No more. No more. <laughs> I'm sure you can just keep going, right? Yes. To the point where it's like, we're never going to release this because this just doesn't seem right. Um, but yeah, eventually you got to go hands up and just, it's got to go. It's got to go. Yeah. And that's where producers really come in handy. <laughs> yeah. They'll keep you on track. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, some, some, some projects, you know, are, are perfectly comfortable doing that. I mean, I, I don't want to knock on anybody, but like, I know that there are studios that will work on something for years and years and, and either they'll never release it or they'll, um, they'll keep us in suspense waiting for it. Uh, I, I still have friends who think that Half-Life 2 Episode 3 is coming out. <laughs> and I'm like, <laughs> right. it might. I mean, Valve yeah. certainly could surprise us, but at this point, I'm not, I'm not going to hold my breath too much, uh, yeah. even though I would love I to see it. I kind of feel the same way about uh, Kim Levine's whatever game he's working on. Um, oh, yeah. You know, I've heard just horror stories about how they built all this stuff out. And he's like, nope, going back to the drawing board for narrative and we're going to start over. And assets are chucked and people quit. And I mean, they've been working on it for like seven or eight years now, if not longer. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's just like, 
you know, I hope we get to see something from him again because I think he's one of the premier storytellers in the in the uh, in the industry. But it's also like I don't know if we ever will. Yeah, uh, I mean, you know, the, there's 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 been a lot of talk about the auteur genius kind of uh, mentality of of whether or not that works, and I I I think it some of that is a little overblown, um, but at the same time, right, like. Yes, it sucks. I've been on projects where things have been, you know, kind of just you had the rug pulled out from under you. I was at Cave Dog, uh, you know, when everything kind of crashed and, and, you know, publishers changed and they and they had different priorities. And and the project that, you know, I was really passionate about and I thought it was going to be a really cool game, um, you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, it just was a victim of, of that kind of like, nope, we're going to just refocus and we're going to do something else and uh and and it makes a lot of you redundant so you know there was a giant layoff and yeah it was it was not fun uh that's that's never a good never a good thing but sometimes good things can come from that so i'm i'm hopeful uh that ken levine and uh and his team can pull something out great yeah yeah me too um that's interesting how just creative decisions can just have this avalanche effect to the point where it's like what's even going on anymore. Um, if, if it really spirals out of control. Yeah. But yeah, but you, you, uh, you weren't always a narrative. So I think one of the interesting things, um, about your, your journey is that, you know, you, you, as you mentioned, you have an art, art artist background, but you were a 3d artist. Like so many people that we've talked to so far have stayed in on one track. You know, if they were a 3d artist, they eventually became an art director. Um, you know, programmers stay as programmers, game designers as game designers, producers as producers, but you, you shifted gears, um, to narrative design. So what made you get into narrative design? You know, it's interesting. I, uh, yeah, I've had a, I've had a really, uh, fun journey. I mean, I, I will say like, I kind of feel like I started in narrative design, but I didn't know what it was. And there wasn't a, a, a road for me to go at the time. Cause I mean, I, I spent a lot of my youth filling notebooks with stories and characters. And, um, you know, I wrote all these different things and, and, but I never, I never thought, Oh, I want to be an author, right? Like I never, I never thought I wanted to get into writing. I just, I, but I wrote these things thinking, Oh, I'd love to tell this story. You know, I want to, I want to tell this story. I was a storyteller. Um, and, but then in high school, I kind of took that in the visual arts direction because I recognized that I had some talent there. Um, uh, and so I got into that first because it was like, well, I mean, I can draw what I want, right? Like I can, I can do paintings or I can, I really wanted to get into comic books. I wanted to draw and write comics. Uh, but not so much that I put a lot of effort towards that. I was, I was sort of ambivalent in that way where I was doing what I wanted to do on the side and I drew a lot of comics, you know, comic pages, but that's, that's it. I would do like a page or two and then I'd be like, okay, moving on to the next thing. Um, so, but the art Institute where I went to school, um, you know, helped me kind of get oriented in, in other ways, um, and learn a lot of different things art wise. But then I kind of fell into, um, working as QA, uh, on some video games, uh, at Humongous Entertainment, which are where I started out my career. And, and then I recognized, oh, wow you can be an artist for video games. That's cool. I never had 
heard of that or thought of that. Um, and so I, I, I dove into that feet first. Um, and I went really hard on like learning 3d max 3d, which wasn't even 3d. No, it wasn't even max yet. It was just 3d studio, uh, you know, and, and learning how to build 3d art and, you know, learned Photoshop and, and how to do all that. And, and so that kind of became my outlet, my expression for, for being a storyteller. I would, I would take the things that I was assigned and I would, and I would, you know, get into what's the story of this piece. Uh, you know, if I had to build a house, I would ask questions of the, you know, either the designers or the writers, I'd be like, Hey, I need to build this house and I need to know, like, what is it made of? What, what construction materials do they have? Why would they build it like this? Would it be a community project or would it be like the person has to build their own house, right? Like, cause that can look very different depending on, you know, how many people are building it, what kind of materials it is. And so I, I always approached things from that of like, what's the story of everything? You know, that's, that's kind of how I always approached all of the things. And, you know, I, I managed to keep myself employed as an artist that way for a long time. I, I did 16 years as an artist. Um, uh, but, you know, because of that, because I had that particular approach, um, I, my art style was very production-y, right? Like it was like I could model, I could texture, I could do things um, at a very competent level. I could build, but I wasn't a visionary. I wasn't, a, I wasn't doing concept art. I wasn't, you know, sort of artsy in that way. Um, and, and so it was, it, it, at the end of the day, it kind of ended up being kind of a mismatch where um, the art director was kind of pushing for more of that. And I was like, well, I'm not really in that direction. Um, and then because, but because I'd been doing all of this sort of like questioning and poking at, well, why, why, why am I building it like this? Um, I ended up getting approached by designers who were like, Hey, you know, you've got some really cool, um, questions <laughs> and we love people asking questions cause that's what design does. Um, and so, you know, it, it kind of became this thing of like, well, I'd never thought of being a designer before. Let me give this a try. Um, and so we did some, uh, work, uh, preliminary work. Uh, I took a design test, uh, and turns out I do good <laughs> on the design stuff. Um, and initially like I, 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 I I knew, like I could see, even in the design, when I was doing the design test, the design test that I took was, I took a very narrative design approach to it. But even then, I wasn't sure what narrative design was. I just, I, I, I thought of design as just this one sort of giant umbrella, and that I was going to be a designer, um, without really knowing that there were different kinds of designers. Because um, again, it was sort of like this new thing to me. Um, and then as I get, got in and I, and I, you know, transitioned to, to design work, um, that's when I first began to realize, oh, there are different disciplines, there are sub-disciplines, and wait, I can be a storyteller, right? Oh my gosh, there's room for me to now start telling stories. Um, and so it kind of awakened that, that childlike need that I had when I was filling notebooks uh, at home into, oh, I can now fill, you know, documentation 
that does the same thing. And I can write backstories for my characters and I can come up with all kinds of ideas. And so like, even though I started out in sort of hard content design where I was designing, you know, sort of events and, and, you know, kind of open world kind of content, um, I was still attaching stories to those things. Uh, and I think it was very clear uh, to the folks that I was working with that I, that I had a very significant story interest. Um, and I, I made that clear that yes, I would love to work in that. And so like over the years I was able to transition, uh, and sort of, well, not transition, but specialize, um, into narrative design. So that's kind of how I got to where I am today. I love the full circle effect of that of starting with, you know, writing stories, creating art as a, as, as a kid and then coming to where you are now and the inquisitiveness behind that, you know, like the why, the why led you into transition or the why and the how behind everything led you into transitioning into narrative design. I think that's just, that's a story in in and of itself. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's the, the central questions that I think uh, are, are important for narrative. And I think that's, that sums up to me, like what, what this is all about, right. Is like, Narrative designers are here to ask the why and the how so that players don't necessarily have to. I think we want them to do it, uh, and, and but I, th- I think we want them to not have to be, like, scratching their heads, like, why or how. So I'll give you, like, a, a, an example of, like, narrative design outside of games. Um, uh, I went to this event. It was a Halloween event where it was supposed to be, like, this... Uh, house of 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 ghosts and you're supposed to go around and talk to them but like there was no narrative design there right like um it was it was a missed opportunity for me like i wanted to pull i wanted to pull the event organizer aside and be like you know (laughs) if you had this here and you and you let play because like I didn't know what to do. Nobody knew what to do. Yeah. Like, and so, so just, just like a bunch of random monsters jumping out and stuff without any yes, sort of structure. Yes, exactly. It. Yeah. And it's like, you know, yeah, yeah. if you just, if you just ask the why and the how and, and, and let your audience not have to ask some of those questions, they'll have a much more enjoyable experience. So that's, that's kind of what I think of. <laughs> Last thing we'll touch on is, is uh, any sort of advice for perspective narrative designers in terms of building a portfolio up. Um, and so I feel like with, you know, with art, it's a little more of a clear cut answer, but for narrative design, I feel like, um, it's a little more ambiguous. It's not like as standard of a position, right? So, uh, anyone who's listening wants to be a narrative designer. What, what do they need to do to really, uh, beef up their portfolio? Uh, the things I think a narrative designer is going to want to focus on, um, is you want to have a broad range in your portfolio and so like a game writer is going to want to have obviously scripts and and those sorts of things um vo samples screenplays a narrative designer wants to have those as well you want to have samples of linear writing but you also i think want to have samples of branching dialogue um you know showing that you have the capability to adjust to the you know things that we do in game development um things that account for player player you know player decision points so being able to say hey if player does this this dialogue will play if player does this other thing this other dialogue will play and then how does that come back together right like how you know showing that you have a grasp of like how dialogue can flow in and out of player choices uh, is a good thing for us to see in portfolios uh, barks 
Um, I know it's not super glamorous, uh, and a lot of writers and narrative designers don't necessarily like them. I like to see them. Uh, in particular, what I like to see is if it's in a spreadsheet, um, you know, not just the dialogue, but like the situations around where that line is supposed to play, context for why that line might play, you know, you might play this one versus that one. Um, you know, just again, sort of thinking of those those sorts of things. I think that those two things can help really demonstrate your 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 acumen from uh, the, the not just a writing standpoint, but that you're thinking of it narrative in a narrative way towards what the player is doing um, and how to how to how we do uh, address all those different scenarios and changing player choices. From there, I think you know seeing some amount of world building is always good. You know, if you've got documents that show that you've written backstories and, and, and character arcs or bios on characters, um, in particular, how that might get translated into a gameplay element. Um, if, if you're playing a combat shooter, like, and you've got different manufacturers for the different weapons or what have you, like, do those have gameplay differences, right? Like, does, does this weapon do more damage than that weapon? Does this class of weapons have a weakness that this other weapon does not? And, you know, those sorts of things. Just to give a sense that you're thinking about not just, um, you know, the cool story of these of these weapons, but, like, what what kind of impact that may have on gameplay. Um, so the, anything that shows those sorts of, you know, interconnected elements is great. So that's kind of what I look for at, at, a, at a high level. Yeah, yeah. No, that makes a lot of sense, and hopefully that's helpful for people who are trying to get their foot in the door as a as a narrow designer. Um, anything you want to plug uh, before we uh, sign off here? I will say this. The, the only thing I will plug is uh, I, I have been doing this job now for 30 years because uh, I started as a QA specialist in in 1992 um so i've been in the industry a long time and and the only thing i'm i'm willing to say is that like i am at the point in my career where i've had my time in the sun uh you know i've i've had a lot of great experiences i'm i'm super grateful for what this industry has given me um and the only thing i'm at the point now where i want to plug is that i want to give back um i have had a couple people reach out to me for mentorship um and I, I don't know that I have the bandwidth to do full-time position mentoring, um, but I, I'm happy to answer questions. I'm happy to have people uh, reach out, and I can, I can talk to them. Uh, I've done some Zoom calls with, with folks who, who are, you know, needing a little bit of guidance, um, you know, or are young and want to, you know, break into the industry and have questions. I love, I love doing that stuff. Uh, so in, in as much as I can, I'm happy to do that. Definitely gave back today. And there's a lot of great information out there. It's super in-depth, really informative. So we, we really appreciate you stopping by and talking to us today. Yeah, I appreciate the opportunity to sit down and, and talk shop with you. It's, it's always good. All right, that's going to wrap up this week's episode. We want to thank Matthew for being our guest. To find out more about Mudstack, head over to mudstack.com, where you can follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, and join our community on Discord. And of course, we want to thank you for listening. We'll see you next time on Clear as Mud. Thank you.